Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. In April 1989, Mikhail Gorbachev made his first visit to Ireland in the form of a brief stopover en route to Havana at Shannon Airport. Back then, he was a global political superstar. His reform agenda and his direct and easy manner, in contrast to the dourness of previous Soviet leaders, had captured the public imagination. His wife, Raisa, elegant, stylish and outgoing, embodied another break with the Soviet era, where leader spouses were rarely seen. The decision to land at Shannon was initially no more than a refuelling necessity, but the political advantages of a meeting were immediately apparent. For the then Taoiseach, Charles Hawhey, this was an unmissable opportunity for face time with Gorbachev on home turf. I was one of a small team of Ivy House officials hastily dispatched to Shannon. Our instructions, direct from the Taoiseach, were clear. However brief and unexpected, this visit was an exceptional chance to showcase Ireland's place in world affairs. The logistical and media arrangements must reflect its singular importance. We had only a matter of days to prepare. Protocol for the political meeting was straightforward. Mr Hoy would greet the President and Mrs Gorbachova at the steps of the aircraft and introduce them to his wife Maureen, Foreign Minister Lenehan and the Irish Ambassador. He would then escort Mr Gorbachev to the terminal building, pose for photographs and offer an Irish coffee before the official talks would commence. Arrangements for Mrs Gorbachova were more of a challenge. She wouldn't be attending the official talks. Some local diversion was needed to occupy the time. Shannon Development, the state agency better known then by its acronym SVADCO, had the answer. Mrs Hawhey would escort her distinguished guest on a visit to the Bunratty Folk Park. She would experience the sights and sounds of 19th century Ireland, see some Irish dancing and, the highlight, visit a traditional schoolhouse of the era to meet a few schoolchildren. Our modest press operation assumed the focus would be on the political talks at Shannon Airport, but we found ourselves overwhelmed by the scale and intensity of the international media interest in Raisa. The global news outlets that flocked to Shannon were there to cover the Hohi Gorbachev meeting, which had now been elevated to a summit. But their primary focus for colour and human interest was Raisa's visit to the folk park, especially her meeting with the children. This presented me with a problem because the schoolroom was so small it could only barely accommodate a total of five TV cameras and photographers. And our hosts, Svadko, insisted that local outlets get priority. Of course we'll have to have the Clare champion, the Limerick leader and Shannon photo, I was told. I couldn't believe my ears. What about CNN, BBC, ITV, AFP, Reuters, I protested. They didn't budge. Would my local colleague care to break the news to the foreign press that they were being excluded, I inquired. No, he would not, he said. He'd leave that to me. I've done my best to draw a veil of forgetfulness over the subsequent uproar from the foreign press corps, as I tried to mollify them by explaining that RTE would be happy to share its TV footage of the schoolhouse visit. 
A more agreeable memory was the tumultuous local welcome accorded the Gorbachevs. A few senior figures from Garda HQ in Dublin had advised their local counterparts to establish a strict security cordon around the airport and the folk park, with only small numbers of carefully vetted and accredited guests admitted. In the event, a throng of county councillors, local dignitaries and family members flooded the airport tarmac for the arrival and departure of the visitors. At the folk park, Raisa and Mrs Hawhey were similarly mobbed by well-wishers. I watched with mounting anxiety as a wave of enthusiastic onlookers pressed forward, and I even saw a well-known RTE correspondent topple from his stepladder, disappearing into the oncoming throng. It was one thing to upset the foreign media, but it would be an entirely different scale of disaster to lose one of our own. And if Mrs Gorbachova and the Taoiseach's wife were swept away in the tide of welcome, that would definitely be a career-defining moment. Throughout the tumult, Maureen Hawhey remained gracious and calm, as did her serene, smiling guest, an evident rapport between them. I've been happy to see a small piece of Ireland, the Emerald Isle, Raisa told the rapturous crowd, but I've been moved even more by meeting you all. Back at Shannon, her husband hit the perfect note, a smiling Mr Hawhey beside him. We're glad to be on Irish soil. Ireland is not a stopover, but a milestone, he said. The welcome may not have followed the protocols we, the official Dublin visitors, would have imposed, but it was local, warm and enthusiastic. Footage of Raisa meeting the children was beamed around the world and I was relieved to see the broadcaster who'd fallen off a lather turn up later on TV looking unruffled. Subsequent, somewhat dismissive remarks from the US ambassador Margaret Heckler only go to show what a coup for Ireland the event was. Gorbomania swept the country, she reported to Washington. One hour of talks during a stopover at Shannon Airport constitutes the first ever Soviet-Irish summit. She missed the point. Gorbachev's stopover was a great political and symbolic success. Watching TV coverage of Mikhail Gorbachev's recent funeral, I thought again of him and Raisa and their visible pleasure in the warmth of their welcome that bright spring Sunday in Shannon. In the past few weeks, Exhausted Ukrainian refugees clearing immigration at Shannon Airport have been greeted by Red Cross volunteers with cups of tea, essential supplies and, above all, a reassuring Irish welcome. Mikhail Sergeyevich and Raisa Maximovna would surely approve. Occasionally, there are polls on social media asking, what is your favourite Irish accent? The result is often the Donegal accent. And I wonder, what exactly does that mean? Which Donegal accent is the favourite? The Inishone accent sounds like a first cousin of Derry. 
The Ross's accent holds the role of the ocean waves. The lagging is rooted in Scottish English, and south of the gap, as the accent moves towards Ballyshannon, it slightly smooths towards Sligo. We speak in a range of voices and phrases that echo other places and other countries. The way we talk doesn't always make it easy for people who are not from the area to understand us. I learned this as a child coming to Letterkenny from Ohio. It can take a while to decipher what is being said. In the counties of Ulster, we use slang that is natural to us but can be unknown to others. Some of our words are carried from Scotland. We are foundered in the cold, can be fierce thran in stubborn times. We can face into so many hanlins in our lives, and there are moments when I am just scunnered with the way something is turning out. Once, I was emailing a woman in Dublin that I knew. Her name is Anya, but I called her Aoife. As soon as I sent the email, I realised my mistake. I wrote back and I said, I'm sorry, I called you Aoife instead of Anya. That's a new man for you. She replied immediately, slightly bewildered. Why would I want a new man? Why did you say that? I had met her not long before that with her husband, and they are a lovely couple. I would never really want a new man for her. I had to explain it was just a saying that we use if you call a person by their wrong name. I have no notion where the idea came from. I didn't go on to explain that in school we used to count out the letters of the mistaken name and could predict the initials of the so-called new man. That would have been too much for Anya to take in at that time. So I took to social media, as you do, to find out how familiar was that phrase, a new man for you, as a reaction for people. Some replies agreed with me, and some had never heard of the saying. The usage seemed to come from Ulster counties and disappeared near Leitrim or Sligo. We in Donegal share a lot of slang with Derry, especially the word we for small, as in W-E-E, or the word wain for child. My youngest son, even though he is an adult, gets that a lot. He could be out in company with me and a woman will look up at him and ask, is this the wain? He takes it in good grace. I don't think it scunners him. I enjoy the randomness of our language, but what is common to us in the north of the country is mystifying to someone trying to settle into the area. I was sitting recently in the reception area of a secondary school in Derry while I waited to visit a classroom for creative writing. A young girl came and sat near me. She looked anxious, so I spoke to her. It was approaching midterm, but it was her first day in the school. Her family had just moved to Derry from another country. I said to her, it can't be easy for you. She smiled weakly. I asked if she found the accent difficult to understand, and she nodded vigorously. I said they use the word we a lot, a wee book, wee house, wee bridge. And she said, I know, I can't understand the context or why they place it so often in that way in a sentence. I smiled. In Derry, the word we is really just decorative. And we talked on. 
Eventually a teacher arrived and asked her to follow him. I wished her the best of luck and watched as she walked up the corridor and was swallowed into the throng of students. I was still a bit ruffled, like a mother hen who had met a stray hatchling, when I was brought into another classroom. In my introduction, I told the students I had just met a new student. I asked them to be kind to anyone who moves into the area. It isn't easy fitting into our ways. Afterwards, I went into Derry City Centre and into a shop. When I got to a checkout, the cashier said to me, Did you see our wee offer today? Would you like a wee bag? Put your wee card in there and then your wee pin number. And I had to smile. It was the late summer of 1999, and four of us were on a three-week trip across America, Chicago to Los Angeles, travelling Route 66. The journey itself was throwing up interesting places and people. Three ghost towns called Shamrock, a barbed wire museum, concrete teepees, preachers, teachers, prophets and politicians of every conceivable hue and none. We were taking turns at the driving and it was my turn behind the wheel on that fateful morning when Frank, one of my travelling companions, suggested we take a detour off Route 66 and visit Las Vegas. It's a couple of hours, Frank said. Miles, I asked. About 250 from where we are now, once in a lifetime. The vote was unanimous. We were a day ahead of schedule and it was unlikely that all four of us would ever be this way again. So off we set. Let me remind you, I'm talking 1999 here. Our car had air conditioning, but it certainly didn't have a sat-nav. Frank opened the map on his lap and I followed his directions. The miles and the hours passed, and the sun rose high into the clear American sky. All was well. Petrol shortages, high prices, global warming, and the associated troubles of the world lay far ahead of us, or certainly beyond the distant horizon. The desert passed in a fog of yellow browns. Mirages appeared and disappeared on the road ahead. I found myself humming horse with no name. We stopped for coffee. How are we doing? I asked. We're doing well, Frank assured me. Another 90 minutes and we should just about be there. And away we went again. More miles, more desert, more memories of Western films in the local cinema. And then we saw it. A tatty sign by the roadside, victim of years of sandstorms and the occasional random gunshot. Las Vegas lies ahead, it read. 
I'd expected something a bit more flash, a bit more showy, Frank said. But we're still 20 minutes or so from it. We must be coming in at the sad end of town. On we travelled. I strained my eyes to catch a glimpse of the first high-rise, or the tip of the recreated Eiffel Tower. But all I could see were the outlines of low buildings on the horizon. Bit more subtle than I expected, I said. A petrol station loomed out of the heat haze, a small tumble-down affair with a couple of old-timers sitting in the shade. I pulled the car onto the forecourt, and we stepped into the boiling air. An attendant came to pump the petrol and clean the windscreen. You could almost see the heat. Frank leaned on the car bonnet. It's uh, very quiet here, he said. I thought there'd be a lot more glitz and glamour, even on the outskirts of the city. The attendant shrugged. This is how it is, senor. But where do we go to find the casinos and all that stuff? The attendant eyed us one by one, before turning his attention back to Frank. Ah, senor, you are looking for Las Vegas, Nevada. This is Las Vegas, New Mexico. You could have cut the silence with a knife. Wrong town, wrong state, almost the wrong country. Twelve hours and 695 miles later, we drove in one end and out the other of Las Vegas, Nevada, well behind schedule, with a cursory wave and an umpteenth reminder to Frank that his navigation skills could do with a little honing. For a long time I had no way of playing the few cassettes still in my possession. But last year, thanks to some birthday present gift vouchers, I treated myself to a stereo system. I bought it with the intention of jumping aboard the vinyl bandwagon. But a year on, my phone remains my main source of music. However, one evening as I go to flick the Bluetooth button on the player, a tape in the box below it catches my eye. I examine it closely. It's a Sony cassette, 90 minutes duration. It simply says on the tape, in my handwriting, best of. I push it into the cassette slot and Sinead O'Connor's mesmerising voice bursts out through the speakers, just like you said it would be. I sit back on the sofa and close my eyes and over the next 90 minutes I am transported back to the early 90s. With no tracklist to follow, every song is a surprise. I sway along to Lucinda Williams, Belly and Delight. However, during the opening bars of Into Temptation by Crowded House, I unexpectedly get cheery. This version of the song is live, and I'm remembering the buzz of being at concerts with loved ones, 
I'm 16 again, grabbing my pal's hands and squealing as we hear the opening bars of our favourite song, rushing past the throngs of fans to get a front row position. On side A, there are seven songs by A House, all taken from their 1990 album, I Want Too Much. I had come across their debut album on our big fat merry-go-round in Freebird Records and Eden Key. It was down the stairs in the bus stop newsagent shop where my mam had worked for a few years. I'd never heard of the band but bought it on a whim in a desperate attempt to be cool. My dad, who never criticised my taste in music, pleaded with me. Oh, Jackie, please turn it off. It's just noise. But I was not returning. My friend, who occasionally worked in the cloakroom in McGonagall's nightclub on South Anne Street, was offered free tickets to a gig of her choice. We studied the upcoming gig listing and saw that our house were due to play. And because I had that album, decided we'd go to see them. And that was it. We were converted. Apparently, I Want Too Much failed to sell in large numbers, resulting in the band being dropped by their record label. Yet 30 years on, I can still sing all the words of every song. Listening to those seven tracks brings me right back into my friend's kitchen and our weekday evenings spent drinking cups of tea as we discussed the important issues of the day, chiefly our desire to find two long-haired fellas to bring to our jabs. I listen on and the tape suddenly stops midway through Sharon Shannon's Blackbird. I turn it over and her exuberant accordion playing kicks into life again. Then it's Dolores O'Riordan's unmistakable Limerick lilt on the Cranberry tracks Linger and Wanted. I recall their brilliant concert in the Point Depot and how we were unable to get a taxi home so walked through East Wall and onto Rohini, linking arms and singing Linger at the top of our voices. That after concert high that shoots adrenaline through your tired limbs so that the five mile walk home becomes as important a part of the night's folklore as the concert itself. Every song reminds me of my friends. Call Me Dirt, sung by the Fat Lady Sings, is up next. I recognise the song and can sing along to the lyrics, but it's not until I get to the chorus that the title comes to me. Nick Kelly's crystal clear voice soars majestically through the speakers into my lounge. I'm reminded of his talent, but also of my friend Sorsha's obsession with the band, and of my Scottish pals Jackie and Karen, who are also die-hard fans. If you ask people about mixtapes, they most likely will tell you stories of making music compilations for lovers or crushes. But my mixtape is a homage to friendship. My friends were everything to me during my teenage years. We listened to music, talked about music, and spent hours making tapes of our favourite songs to share with each other. In a pre-Spotify era, the mixtape creations really were a labour of love. R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts finishes my musical odyssey and these lyrics resonate the most. Because everybody hurts. Take comfort in your friends. While we waited for long-haired fellas, college places, dream jobs and grown-up relationships, we took comfort in each other and in music. This rediscovered mixtape is a precious recording of my teenage years and the good fortune of having true friends who provided comfort, love and an abundance of joy. You've always been here with me and 
It's my reflection Double structure And what it tells me When she was here back in 2011, she certainly smiled a lot and seemed keen to talk to everyone and wore various shades of green and threw in the few words of Irish in her speech up in the castle. But did Queen Elizabeth really have a good time when she made her first visit to these shores? Well, yes, she did. How do I know this? Because shortly after that visit, that's precisely what she told my sister at Buckingham Palace, when she pinned an OBE onto her jacket. They were all chat, the pair of them. And then the Irish question arose when Pauline buttonholed her about the recent visit. Well, said her Madge, in that quiet but extraordinarily posh voice, it was most enjoyable. So there you have it, straight from the horse's mouth. Elizabeth Windsor had a ball in Ireland. It was a great occasion at Buckingham Palace on that June day and the culmination of a series of events that began on a snowy evening the previous December as my family gathered to celebrate a milestone birthday for my father. There's something else to mark as well, said Alan, my brother-in-law. Pauline's up for an OBE in the New Year's Honours list. Yeah, 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 we all said, laughing. No, really, he said for her services to education, for all her years as a groundbreaking head teacher in Yorkshire and for her more recent work as an educational troubleshooter, parachuted into numerous problematic and deprived schools, tasked with raising their standards and saving them from closure. We all looked at Pauline. It was true. And so it began. When would it happen? Between January and July. How many guests could she bring? Three. Actually into Buckingham Palace? Into that grand ballroom to watch her getting the yoke pinned onto her jacket? Yes, three. So that was Alan, her husband, Steph, her only child, and moi, her only sibling. Could I set aside my anti-monarchy instincts for just one day, my sister couldn't resist asking. Could I what? And so it was that the day itself arrived. Ah, yes, the day itself. I woke in my hotel room at 5am. It was a spectacular June morning, complete with clear azure blue sky. So I got up and sat at the window, watching transfixed as the city came alive. Earth has not anything to show more fair, wrote William Wordsworth, in the opening lines of Upon Westminster Bridge, his beautiful sonnet about London, this city now doth like a garment wear the beauty of the morning. As indeed it did. And so, four hours after my literary musings, we happy few were taxiing down the mile, dressed in our finery and clutching our passports and bright yellow invitations, the golden tickets to give us entry to the inner sanctum. Tourists were heaving outside the palace as we approached the gate. A quick flash of her invites and passports at the friendly Bobby and, hey presto, we were in. Across the front apron of the grounds we traipsed, into the quadrangle beyond, then up the red carpeted steps and into the palace. 
With the star of our show gone off to join her fellow VIPs, we three headed for the ballroom and were amazed to find ourselves escorted to the very front row. We couldn't believe our luck. Posh frocks and hats dominated the roomscape. Oil paintings hung around the walls. Red, velvet-covered banquette seating lined the sides of the room and an orchestra played somewhere towards the rear. We looked at our watches. Still over an hour to kick off, Steph said. But then, up stepped an elegant-looking palace official to talk us through proceedings. Applause etiquette, if you don't mind. When to stand for the Queen. What to do at the end. That sort of thing. Before we knew it, it was 11am. A door opened to our right and in came the Queen herself, escorted by two Gurkha soldiers and five yeomen of the guard, resplendent in their red regalia. First impressions? That she was tiny and that her silk frock with ivory background and tiny splashes of colour in green and yellow was both understated and extremely elegant. Hooked over her arm, meanwhile, in exactly the same way that my granny used to carry hers, was an oversized black patent handbag. She walked to the slightly raised platform in front of us, set down the bag and proceedings began. We three were a bit on edge, looking to our left all the time as the queue snaked forward, nervously waiting for that first glimpse. And suddenly, there she was, our Pauline, about to meet the Queen of England and to be acknowledged for all her wonderful work. She moved forward, from first base at the door to second base beside a minder, just a few feet from the Queen. Pauline, Mrs Pendlebury, boomed the man with the voice, announcing each recipient, for services to education. My sister walked forward, curtsied subtly, no need to lose the run of yourself when you're Irish, and then approached the Queen, who leaned forward and pinned the coral-ribboned medal on her jacket. And then they chatted, and chatted, about all sorts, apparently, including the visit to Ireland. Then, finally, the Queen shook my sister's hand, Pauline backed away, turned, caught our eyes, walked past us and out of the ballroom. The rest of the ceremony was a bit of a blur, and then, all done and dusted, we stood for the national anthem, instrumental only, no singing allowed, as the Queen gathered up the handbag and exited stage right. We rushed to find my sister. Where's the yoke, we asked her, expecting to see the medal gleaming on her jacket. She had it in its box. And that's where it stayed for the rest of the day. While we wandered the corridors of the palace to find the loo, four-star, old-fashioned hotel standard, a bit like Boswell's in Dublin, mingled in the quad for photos, sat in the sunshine in Green Park as Pauline Pendlebury, OBE, spoke to our proud parents back at home. And later, while we drank Prosecco in Franco's on German Street, where we were joined by the rest of the sisters' lunch party, all of whom had travelled from far and wide to help her celebrate in style. It was some day. But then, why wouldn't it be? For as a friend back in Dublin texted me later that afternoon, she's some woman. And no, she didn't mean the Queen.
Jimmy Joes, one year on. You called them Jimmy Joes. Da called them clocks. No matter the name, we kids just loved what happened when yous showed us the dandelion trick. But now, there's one cheeky Jimmy Joe grown out from the pebbles of your final resting place. Ma, I know you got me to dig up ground thistles when Da was in here alone. But a Jimmy Joe is another matter. One year on and yous are back together in the boneyard. What am I to do? I look around in case your ghost appears to give some advice about this Jimmy Joe. Nothing doing. By now, the bell Jimmy Joe is eyeing me up Curious as to my next move. I hunker down, steady myself, nod towards your gravestone and pluck the Jimmy Joe. I smile at the memory of yous. Take a breath and blow seeds all over the place. On this morning's Sunday miscellany, we heard Gorbachev in Shannon. That was by Joe Hayes. Denise Blake brought us our way of talking. Las Vegas, or is it? That was by John McKenna. Take Comfort in Your Friends by Jackie Lynham. We also heard from the recent miscellany archive, The Day My Sister Met the Queen, which was by Rosalind D. And in there too, Rachel Hegarty's poem, Jimmy Joe's One Year On. Music this morning included a Claire Jig that was played by Siobhan Armstrong on harp. We heard Paul Brady's The Homes of Donegal, A Horse With No Name by America and Friends in Time, that was by The Golden Horde. Ceremonial Fanfare number 12 by Diabelli was played by John Wallace on trumpet with the Wallace Collection and the Philharmonia Orchestra conducted by Christopher Warren Green. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.